passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 this morning, so if you have a Bible, go ahead, open up uh, to that chapter um, as we continue our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And as you're doing that, I just want to talk a moment about waiting, because waiting is something that is um, really hard, uh, but also uh, something that God oftentimes makes us do. We live in a culture that thinks that anything that's worth having is worth having now. You can just talk to my kids when I order two packages online at the same time. One of them arrives for one child two days ago, and the other one doesn't arrive for another three days. And I can't understand why one of them gets their package and the other one still has to wait. Anything worth having, our culture says, is worth having now. Of course, the Bible teaches us the opposite. Oftentimes, God uses waiting to be at work in the lives of his people. God operates on a timetable that is completely and utterly different than the timetable that we use. He seems to delight in making us wait. And it's not because he delights in disappointing his children, but because he knows better than we could fathom that waiting is an opportunity for spiritual growth. It's oftentimes in the waiting where God grows his people. So after promising Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, he sees fit to make them wait for decades before he actually provides that son. God made his people wait in the wilderness for 40 years, for an entire generation before they were allowed to enter into the promised land so that they could learn their reliance upon him. And as we've seen in 1 Samuel over and over and over again, even though David has been anointed king, he has to wait years before God gives him the throne. And these periods of waiting are are far from easy. Abraham gives up on waiting, decides to take matters into his own hands, decides to have a son with his wife's servant, Hagar. Israel, during their time in the wilderness, that time is just filled with complaining, rebellion, unbelief. David, regularly faced with the temptation to rely on himself rather than to rely on God as he is waiting for God to do what he has promised to David. What about you? When you are faced with waiting, how do you respond? When your life isn't at all what you thought it would be, maybe your job has plateaued and you're not at this position that you thought you would be by this point in your life. Maybe you're, you're still single and you thought by now that you would be married. Maybe your finances are far cry from where you thought they would be by now in this point of your life. When you wait, when you're forced to wait, how do you respond? Are you tempted to despair? Tempted to, to rely on yourself, take matters into your own hands? Or do you run toward the God who regularly uses waiting as a part of his work in the lives of his people. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to look at this this story from David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 
years after he's been anointed king, where he is still running from Saul for his life, and he has to decide what he will do in the midst of the waiting. 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 26, three chapters that talk about how David now has accrued enough power that he can do something with it. There is an opportunity for David to seize what he thinks is rightfully his, and if you look at the promises of God, is rightfully his. These three chapters look at how David responds to the power and the opportunities before him. How will he respond in the midst of the waiting? 1 Samuel chapter 24 breaks into two parts. All of the action takes place in verses 1 through 7, and then after that we have this lengthy discussion that takes place outside of the cave between David and Saul in verses 8 through 22. We're going to go ahead and look at both of these in turn, but before we do that, let's pray once more and ask for God's presence uh, to be with us. Would you pray with me? Father, all of us know to varying degrees what it means to wait. I confess I don't like to wait. God, when we find ourselves in seasons of waiting, seasons where it is easy to become disillusioned with the way our lot in life has fallen, we ask that you would help us to trust in you. Help us to rely on you to run to you. We ask that you would use this text this morning to encourage us to do just that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so when we open 1 Samuel chapter 24, some time has passed since the end of chapter 23. Last week, we saw God's providence step in and and come to the rescue of David in the 11th hour. Saul is pursuing David. He's about to capture David. Right before Saul captures him, we see this happen in verses 26 through 28 of chapter 23. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture him, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come. For the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Now we don't know how long Saul's battle against the Philistines uh, takes place. It's at least weeks, probably months, that Saul is gone. He's off of the pursuit of David. You wouldn't know from the text, however, because when you open to chapter 24, verse 1, it tells us right away Saul is back on the trail of David. His, His chief concern is on clear display here. That this man who was supposed to be delivering God's people from their enemies, he, he does that with the Philistines, and yet the moment he has an opportunity, he goes back to his, his number one passion, which is pursuing David. Verse 1, when, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. So Saul again catches wind where David is hiding. He's hiding somewhere in the wilderness near En Gedi. This time, uh, En Gedi is, is this location um, where, with a fresh spring of water near the Dead Sea. Actually, I have a picture we can go ahead and show what the wilderness of En Gedi looked like. It, it would have um, been filled with caves and uh, a lot of places to hide. Uh, hiding would be very easy here, finding someone would be a little bit more challenging. 
So, so David and his men are hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul pursues David. He's, he's got 3,000 3, hand-picked men with him to pursue David. Go ahead and, and pick up in verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. Let's go ahead and pause right there. We have a picture of what a cave oftentimes looks like in this area. Uh, caves um, could be deceptive. You could have one area that looked like it was all that the cave was, but then there were, there were hidden recesses in the back. And that's exactly what takes place here. That Saul finds a cave at random, decides to go to the bathroom. And while he, he goes to the bathroom, he goes to this cave that'll give him some privacy. He takes his robe off so that way he can go to the bathroom. And, and he's, he's doing this away from, um, from the rest of the army. And, and luck would have it, he just walks into this cave that he thinks is completely empty. He thinks it's a shallow cave. And luck would have it, and I use that term ironically, it's the exact same cave that David the man that he is pursuing, the man he wants to kill so desperately, is hiding in. Last week, as we were in chapter 23, we noticed the, the end of, of chapter 23, that even though God isn't mentioned explicitly, we see his fingerprints all over the story. God is the one, through his providence, who intervenes to deliver his chosen king. And we talked about providence, so this, this term that really refers to this purposeful sovereignty, that God is in complete and utter control, but what's more, God has a plan. And he's orchestrating that in every single facet of life. And his control is not arbitrary. And that's what we see here. We see that this cave that Saul decides to go in just so happens to be where David and his men are hiding out. There's nothing random about this at all. God is in complete control. This is what providence means. But something that we haven't talked about with providence is interpreting providence. So we can see that God is in complete control, that this is a part of God's plan. But the question is, what is God's plan for having Saul go into this cave. While God is in complete and utter control of all things at all times, it can be hard for us to discern the purpose behind his providence. This is why wisdom is so essential in the Christian life. It's not enough for us to know that God is in control, that God has a plan. It is also vital for us to be able to discern the significance of God's control in our lives. That's the heart of the discussion between David's men and David as we look at verses 4 and 5. Go ahead and look at verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So consider this moment. David's men, they believe that God is in complete and utter control, which is, which is true. And they conclude that God has a plan, which is true. And yet they also conclude that that plan, incorrectly we will see, is that Saul now can be killed by David, that David can seize the throne, he can seize the promises that God has made to him. They even go as far as saying, you know what, this is the moment 
that God has promised you. I imagine them breaking into a rousing chorus of this is the day the Lord has made in this moment. That's exactly what they say. This is the day that God was talking about when he said your enemy would fall into your hand and you can do whatever you want with him. There's just one problem. God never said that to David. As best as I can tell, giving them the benefit of the doubt, they combine two moments in David's life together to reach this conclusion. The first one is back from 1 Samuel chapter 16, when David is anointed king. We see this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him king in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So David's men know that he is one day going to be the king. And David's been waiting for a long time. Surely this is the moment, right? After all, a chapter earlier, when David asked if he should go and attack the Philistines at Calah to deliver the people of Calah, notice what God said to him about his enemies in chapter 23, verse 4. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So here's David's men, and they're looking at, at all of the evidence that they have, and they've reached this conclusion that, you know what, God has promised you the throne, David, and God has promised you, made this, this promise to you in our last chapter, that he would deliver into your hands your enemies, his enemies, the Philistines. So isn't God doing the exact same thing right now? Isn't Saul your enemy? This is the day for you to seize at long last what God has promised to you. And so David gets up and he crawls to the front of the cave. It must have just disappointed David's men that rather than going for Saul, David instead goes for Saul's robe. Saul has taken that robe off. He's put it off to the side so he can go to the bathroom here are men that, that thought that, that David is going to cut Saul's throat, and now he's just cutting the corner off of a robe. And David crawls back to his men at the back of the cave, verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David crawls back to his men at the back of the cave, and we see that his conscience is just overcome with guilt because of his actions. And we say, why? It's just a piece of clothing. Verse 6 gives us the answer. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David doesn't just have an overly sensitive conscience here. He realizes that he has done something wrong. Now, he may not have, have tried to kill Saul, but he did raise his hand against Saul. And by extension, he raises his hand against God. To understand the significance of what David is saying here, let's, let's just talk about robes, kings, and gods in the ancient times. Robes, kings, and gods. We've seen the importance of robes in the book of 1 Samuel to this point. Anytime a robe is mentioned in 1 Samuel, it's a talk about authority. So Samuel is dressed in a robe as the prophet, as the leader, as the judge of God's people. It's a sign of his authority. We see the same thing from Saul. We see the same thing from 
Jonathan, his son. We've actually seen the, the significance of, of a robe ripping earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has been rejected as the leader of God's people, and he tries to, to grab on to Samuel to, to try to, to keep the, the, the kingdom to be his, and we see this in chapter 15, verses 27 and 28. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So we've already seen that the tearing of a robe is, is symbolic of the removal of a kingdom. And there's some, some very clear parallels here between chapter 15 and chapter 24. But I think the significance is made even clearer when we consider the actions of Jonathan, Saul's son, in chapter 18. Notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped him of himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This takes place immediately after David's victory over Goliath. And Jonathan knows that his dad has been rejected. He knows that prophecy, that declaration from Samuel in chapter 15, that, that God has given the kingdom to someone better. He doesn't know who that is. And then he sees David's actions. He sees David's faith in doing what Saul was supposed to do in chapter 17. And he realizes this is the one. This is the man who will lead God's people. This is the one that we have waited for. And he takes his robe, and he, he sheds it, and he gives it to David. This robe was a significant robe. It was the robe of a crown prince, looking at the context of first Samuel chap, uh, just 1 Samuel period. And he takes that robe, and he lays it at David's feet. He abdicates the throne to David and says, I am going to follow you. I'm going to submit to you my kingdom, my right as the heir to the throne. I submit to you. Because you are the Lord's chosen king. And we should look at Jonathan, or Saul's robe here in a similar fashion. Just as Jonathan's robe was, was a symbol that he was the crown prince, that he was the heir to the throne, Saul's robe is not just some ordinary robe. It was a symbol of his reign as the king. And so for David in this moment to, to cut off even just a corner of this robe is no small matter, but it is making a stake on, he's making a claim on the kingdom in this moment. Do we see that this is not just some small, insignificant action from David? David is actually challenging Saul for the throne. He's laying a counterclaim to the throne. And whether he does that intentionally or not in this moment, he realizes by verses 5, 6, and 7 that, that he's done this. That he's raised his hand not just against Saul, but also against God. Because in cutting off this corner of the robe, he's not just dethroning Saul, he's also dethroning God. Ancient nations believed that their king had a special relationship with their God. This was true of all nations. It was certainly true of the people of Israel. If you look through the Psalms, Psalm chapter 2 is this psalm that was uh, sung at the coronation of a king. You look at Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, and it talks about the king as the son of God. 
And it's not referring to Son of God in the sense that Jesus is the Son of God. It's just a title referring to the special relationship between the king of God's people and God himself. It's a title of respect. The king was the king because God chose him in spite of his all, all of his faults to be the king. This was true of all nations. That's why Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, says this, He, the Lord, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And there is talking about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. How much truer is it of Saul, the king of God's people, who has been anointed by Samuel to be the king of God's people? So it's no, no wonder that, that David, in this moment, his, his conscience is struck by his actions. He, he not only raised his hand against Saul, he's raising his hand against God himself. He's raising his hand against God's timing. He's raising his hand against God's plan. Just one small cut of fabric, David has declared he's tired of waiting. He's sick of waiting for the kingdom, for God's promises. With one cut of the fabric, he's saying, God, I know better than you. And his conscience, his heart, is immediately grieved because of that, and, and he repeats, or he repents instantly. And this is the heart of David's words in verse 6. Let's read that again. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he is the Lord's anointed. David has a different take on this situation, a different interpretation of providence than his men. Far from this being the opportunity that, that David has to kill Saul, to seize the the throne, David realizes this is a test of his faith. But David to this moment has shown great trust in God when he has been on the run. But what about when all of the power is his? What about when he has a shortcut to the throne? You see, in spite of all of his faults, and there are many, Saul is still the king. David knows his Bible. He knows in Exodus chapter 22, Moses says to not curse one's ruler. How much more then should one not raise their hand in order to kill them? David knows that the ends never justify the means. And Saul deserves death for his actions in chapter 21 and chapter 22 when he, he kills the priests of Nob. But to kill him in cold blood, while he's defenseless, while he's going to the bathroom, is murder. And David refuses to lift his hand against him. And David instead decides to wait, decides that God will keep his promises and God will keep his promises in his way and in his timing. Now, there's much we can learn from these verses. At the heart of this story, we're reminded that we cannot attain the promises of God by going contrary to the Word of God. That wrong is always wrong. That when we grow tired of waiting, 
It does not justify us to live a life contrary to the Word of God. Waiting instead is an opportunity for us to trust in the Lord, not for us to take matters into our own hands. And this can look a number of ways in our lives. I, I, I don't think any of us will find ourselves in David's situation. And yet, we may be tempted to take matters into our own hands to right the wrongs that we have experienced. One pastor, J.D. Greer, puts it this way, What matters is not the extent of the vengeance, but the heart behind it. You have hurt me, so when I am given the opportunity, I will hurt you. And whether it's with our words or our actions, the ever-present temptation for us to get even with those who have hurt us is there. Instead of waiting upon God's justice and God's plan. But this doesn't just show itself in times where we've been wronged and we want to get even. Far more common, I think, is the temptation to grumble to complain when things aren't going our way. We complain about others. We complain about our circumstances. We complain about the good that we see other people experiencing and yet we aren't experiencing. And even if we never complain about God, isn't that what we're doing when we complain about God's plan and the circumstances we find ourselves in? Aren't we saying, God, you're not doing a good enough job taking care of me, of doing things my way? David here is a sobering reminder to us of the dangers facing us when God asks us to wait. So while you wait, will you wait in a way that trusts in the Lord rather than taking matters into your own hands? Let's keep going in this text. Saul leaves the cave. He's completely unaware of how close to death he is in this moment. David, he seems to escape again, and yet then he does something that's completely unbelievable. He goes out of the cave in order to confront Saul. And I've, I've wrestled a lot with why on earth David does this in this moment. This is a huge risk. Huge risk. And the only, only thing I can think of for why David does this is because he sees the risk of addressing Saul as worth it for the potential of restoration and reconciliation. He takes a massive risk, and, and there's more that we could say on that. We could, we could consider how highly David in this moment values reconciliation, that he's willing to take this great risk. Uh, but you'll just have to ponder that on your own. Because there's something else this text is teaching us that I want us to look at. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? So David leaves the cave. He's willing to, to take a risk in order to reach Saul. But at the same time, he, he's, he's very wise in this moment. He doesn't outright accuse Saul of trying to kill him. He instead says, Saul, your greatest fault is you have bad counselors. You've surrounded your, yourself with people who say, I'm trying to kill you. That's not true. 
even though Saul is the one who thinks this himself. Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And someone told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So here in this moment, David, he, he's regretted cutting the, the corner of, of Saul's robe off, and yet it is proof to Saul that David does not seek his life, that he has no intention to kill him. Can you imagine this moment if you're Saul? You, you go into a cave to go to the bathroom. You walk out of the cave, and then someone follows you out that you had no idea was in there. And then what's worse, they start calling after you. You turn around, and it's the person you're trying to kill. And then they say, hey, by the way, I could have killed you, but I have uh, your robe right here to show that I'm not going to kill you. And like Saul in this moment, can you just imagine his, his, his eyes involuntarily are forced to look at the corner of his robe? And then his, his, his face goes white because he now realizes how close to death he was in this moment. The fact that David claims to be the type of person who isn't seeking vengeance is proven. The only reason Saul is still alive is because David is exactly the type of person that he claims to be. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Catch the heart of of David's message here. David's chief concern is to to tell Saul of his confidence that God is a just God. That David will not take upon himself vengeance of righting perceived wrongs, real wrongs in David's case, because he knows that God is He's a perfect judge. And David is waiting. He's trusting that God, this perfect judge, will be the one who establishes justice on his timetable, not on David's. David doesn't pursue vengeance because that's God's responsibility, not David's. And so David, in this moment, um, he speaks points to God with his words, and and then Saul responds, starting in verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me When the Lord put me into your hands, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? 
so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. It seems that, at least to some extent, David's words to Saul, they, they, they sink in. Saul can't deny the facts that are in front of him. David could have killed him, chose not to. And David, by entrusting his future into God's hands rather than taking matters into his own hands, has proven that he is righteous. And Saul, through his actions, by his own words here, admits that he himself is wicked, is evil for trying to hunt David. Verse 20, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to the Lord. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Perhaps most surprising of all in this moment is Saul recognizing in these verses that David will be the one who is king. And yes, Jonathan told us in the last chapter that Saul knows this, but this is probably the first time that that Saul has actually admitted this out loud. And so Saul asks for mercy from the man who just showed him mercy, and he asks for the same thing that David has already promised to Jonathan. And so Jonathan, or excuse me, David readily agrees. He says, of course I'll do that. I've already promised that. And then Saul goes home. But David continues to hide because he's seen enough from Saul that this is a man who changes his mind And his word cannot be trusted. So he continues to hide. What can we learn from this last half of this chapter? David, yet again, I think a wonderful example for us to follow. Here is a man who is faced with great injustice, and yet he does not take matters into his own hands, but instead trusts the verdict to God. David lives out the words of the Apostle Peter that he spoke thousands of years later, 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. David knows that in spite of all of the wrong that he has experienced at Saul's hands, that God alone will be perfectly fair perfectly just. That David is right to feel upset, to to know that he has been wronged, but David recognizes that he's too close to the situation, and so God himself will be the one who perfectly judges. He won't be too lenient. He won't be too harsh. And so David, in the words of the Apostle Peter, entrusts his soul to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the message of the second part of this chapter here, that you can trust God to right your wrongs. You can trust God to right your wrongs. No matter the the wrong that you have experienced or faced, be sure of this, that God is not only able, but will beyond a shadow of a doubt, with perfect justice, right every wrong that you have experienced. No matter how, may, how big it may be, how small it may be, 
God is the one who will right every wrong that you have experienced. Now, as with all of 1 Samuel, this chapter takes our gaze from David and raises it to Jesus. That David is the Lord's chosen king, but only in the sense that he points us to Jesus, the Lord's true chosen king. Consider just briefly how David serves as a forerunner of Jesus in this passage by considering the temptation that Jesus himself faced. That David was tempted with this moment to seize the throne, a shortcut to God's promises, and Jesus experiences the exact same thing in the wilderness. For David, the temptation was to seize something that God had promised to him, but not in the way that God desired for him to do, in a way that was contrary to the will of God. The throne was there. It was his for the taking, and all he had to do was kill Saul to sacrifice his faith in order to gain the promises of God. And the same is true for Jesus. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. He's offered a shortcut to the promises of God. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus is the, the true ruler of the world, the rightful ruler of the world. He was promised a shortcut to what was rightfully his, the throne. God had promised the throne, and now Satan is promising the throne, but with different paths to get there. One would go through the cross, and one was easy, simple, justifiable. And yet Jesus chooses to be faithful to use the words of Philippians, faithful to the point of death, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is the same temptation that Jesus faces throughout his life. This temptation culminates in the garden hours before his crucifixion. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Notice the language Jesus uses here in this passage. The language Mark uses to describe the distress Jesus finds himself in. He is greatly distressed. He is, he is troubled. This word troubled means something like overcome with horror. And so he tells his friends, my soul is so filled with sorrow in this moment. I'm on the very verge of death. And the question we might have is, is why Jesus has spent his entire ministry talking about his death. He's preparing his disciples for the moment he will die. So why is there this sudden change in this moment? The answer is found in Jesus' request in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
here in this moment when Jesus talks about the cup. He's referring back to the Old Testament. The cup in the Old Testament is a reference to God's wrath, his judgment that is coming upon sinful humanity. So when Jesus in this moment asks God to remove this cup from me, we catch a glimpse of the horror that is facing Jesus on the cross, the the thing that makes Jesus so sorrowful to the point of death. It's it's not death. It's, It's not physical pain. It's not torture. It's the prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs so that those who would be found in him would never have to drink that poisonous cup. Jonathan Edwards, great American preacher from the 1700s, puts this moment this way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of the furnace of wrath into which he would be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know what he was about to suffer. Here in Gethsemane, moments before his arrest, moments before the avalanche of events that will end with him hanging on a cross, Jesus faces his, his greatest test, the, the, the greatest temptation, I, I would say even greater than his temptation in the wilderness. He knows his father's plan, and he knows what it will cost him. Will he wait? Will he be obedient to his father's plan? That's the crux of the matter. Will Jesus remain obedient to his father and his father's plan and his father's timing? Because if Jesus will not drink the cup of God's wrath, then it will fall on each of us to drink that cup. There will be no rescue for a broken creation. If Jesus turns his back on his father's plan, there will be no ransom for many. We are given glorious insight into the battle waging in Jesus' very soul at this moment through his prayer. Notice verses 35 and verse 36. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus in this moment is overcome with anguish and he falls on his face and he cries out to his father saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to walk the road to Calvary. Here we see in this prayer the longings of the Son of God to avoid a judgment he does not deserve and yet, even more than all of this, we see his longing to do his father's will. To remain faithful. The voice in the first garden said, God, not what you will, but what I want. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus say, Not my will, but yours. This is the king that David points us to a king who is willing to wait. A king who is faithful and obedient. Even though that means the cross. And because of this king, it is, faithful, it is possible for us in the times 
in spite of all the times we've rejected him, gone our own way, been impatient, refused to wait, seizing what we thought should be ours rather than waiting upon God and his plan. Because this king did none of that in spite of the horror of the cross, we are welcomed into the family of God. You see how this passage ties to the cross? Without Jesus faithfully following his Father's plan, there would be no cross. And without a cross, there would be no promises of God for us. At the cross, we see the promises of God fulfilled. We see them guaranteed. At the cross, we see the justice of God guaranteed. No matter how long you have to wait, the cross and King Jesus assure us that our waiting will never be in vain. No matter how long God asks you to wait, it will never be in vain. Because of the cross, because of Jesus, you don't have to wait in vain, but you can use that period of waiting for his glory, for your good, for your growth. David knew that the waiting, as hard as it was, was a part of God's plan for him, and yet he also knew that God was worth trusting. How much more can we say that? Because he's seen it proven at the cross. Let's pray. God, I've seen so many times in my life I don't wait well. Forgive me for that, God. Forgive us for taking matters into our own hands, for complaining about you, against you. God, we ask that you would help us to look to the cross and to know that our waiting will not be in vain. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.